When I was around 11 or 12 years old, I fell in love with a few things that would change the course of my life forever. One was music. I mean, I always loved music, but during this time my focus sharpened a bit, moving past the Casey Kasem Top 10 countdown and Dr. Demento. Around this time, I started skateboarding too, and although I wasn't ever that good at it, skating and music gave a shape to my burgeoning rebellion. These things would help cement my feeling like an outsider, but also help me take pride in that feeling. And by the way, you're listening to sounds from a local skate park. And no, I didn't actually skate that day. Partly because it was too crowded, but also because I never really learned how to skate bowls and ramps. In the mid-1980s, when I was a skater, there were no skate parks, not in Denver anyway. Certainly no one I knew had a pool, empty or otherwise. There were no X Games, YouTube videos, or popsicle-shaped boards. Our decks were wide, and the wheels were soft. We skated in places like parking garages and empty surface lots because, well, where else were we going to go? And we listened to music. Lots of music on big boomboxes powered by giant D batteries. We listened to bands like The Clash, The Who, and The X-Ray Specs. And I remember hearing a soundtrack from a movie called The Harder They Come, which blew my young, developing mind. Discovering this kind of music would open up a whole world to me, one which has influenced my taste to this day. My love for skateboarding and music and my friends felt important and to a degree more pure than anything else in my life at the time. Maybe because school and home had become more complicated, but anyway, that's not this story. It's hard to know when that kind of uncomplicated love will strike you, and it's also hard to know what to do when that kind of love becomes complicated, as everything must eventually. And that's the long way of telling you what our stories are about today. Pure, complicated love. We'll start with a story from a friend of the show, Amanda E.K. As an ex-evangelical, Amanda has been doing a lot of writing about growing up in that church and the idea of purity and purity culture. She's written a book about it, and she shared this excerpt with us. Here's Amanda. Chapter 14, Where You Lead, I Will Follow. How long have you had them? Asked Lane, her hand on my knee as we sat side by side on our houndstooth patterned love seat. We were college sophomores now and roommates. She and I were known on our floor for our friendship. The friends who had pillow fights, who created scavenger hunts for each other, sang the lesbian love song from the musical Rent together at our dorm's talent show, and even once brushed each other's teeth. I viewed living with Lane as practice for the day I'd live with my husband. We made decisions together and counseled each other through our struggles. That fall, I struggled my worst with depression, and along with that depression, an increase in the headaches I'd been having since high school. 
Over two years now, I said to Lane, tugging at my waist-length hair. I'd had a headache nearly every day for two years with no identifiable cause. My parents had sent me to a slew of doctors before the school year started. A neurologist, a gynecologist, a chiropractor. I'd had an MRI scan of my head at the hospital. My parents had eliminated different products and foods from our household over the summer to see what might help. My mom even changed the laundry detergent and the shampoo, got rid of the peanuts. But nothing made a difference. Some days the headaches were so bad I couldn't make it to class. Today was one of those days. Lane put a hand on my shoulder and looked me in the eyes. I think it's worth considering that your headaches might be Satan's influence. He wants you to think God can't help you. I nodded, my heart starting to thud against my Christian boy band t-shirt. I hadn't considered that Satan might have a role in this. Was this his way of taunting me for my addiction to sexual fantasies and self-pleasure? I imagined him laughing in my face every time I touched myself laughing in God's face for losing his grip on my eternal soul. I'd like to say a prayer to cast out the pain demon in your head, said Lane with an earnest look on her face. I felt a bit giddy, excited for the prospect that something might finally fix my headaches. What a relief it would be, and what an opportunity to praise God for his healing powers. Maybe I hadn't believed in him enough, I'd been too focused on the limitations of humans. After all, science could only go so far before God took over. I almost laughed out loud for how much sense it suddenly made. The Bible said that if we believed hard enough, we could move mountains. This was merely a case of insufficient faith. I scooted closer to Lane and melted into her nurturing gaze. I felt loved by her as though she was Christ herself. She told me daily that I was beautiful and that she was blessed to have a friend like me. She gave me thoughtful gifts out of the blue just because she loved me. My favorite, a necklace she made from one of my earrings when its match went missing. Lane was the model for every Christ-like trait I wanted to possess. When she said she wanted to cast a demon from my head, I believed that she could, that her prayer would fix what doctors couldn't. I'd never experienced a laying on of hands in my own church, but I trusted that Lane knew what she was doing. She placed her hands on my head and I closed my eyes, centering my focus on God. In that moment, Lane's tangible touch felt more real than any encounter I'd had with the Creator. I believe this could work. I was ready to be healed from headaches, from depression, and from masturbation. I prepared myself for convulsions, for my eyes rolling back in my head and a demon's voice emerging from my throat. I needn't be worried if my body twisted away from Lane and seized on the floor as the pain demon was extracted. I felt safe with her. She'd seen the presence of a demon before, behind the eyes of a patient at a mental hospital where she'd worked. I've never been more certain the devil was real, she'd said. I leaned into the pressure of Lane's palms. Her fingertips on my scalp tingled like peppermint soap. Repeat after me, she began. God, be with us tonight. We invoke your help to banish Satan from this young woman's head. When I tried to speak, though, I found that I couldn't. I was mute. No sound issued from my throat. I also couldn't move my eyes. They stared, fixated but not seeing, just past Lane's face. This wasn't going to work. It couldn't work unless she knew all my sins. She was being so kind to me, believing so hard that I could be better, but her efforts would be in vain if she didn't have all the details, all the facts to fuel the prayers directed at my head. If my addiction was behind the cause of my headaches, I owed it to her to confess. 
My cheeks flushed with shame and embarrassment. You can do this, I heard God whisper in my ear. I blinked a few times, then forced myself to speak. Lane, I need to confess something, I choked out. Lane looked deep into my eyes like a loving mother with a penitent child. Okay, she prompted. I took a deep breath, then said, There's something I've been doing for a long time that I shouldn't. Lane held her gaze. I continued, It gives me the type of feeling that should be saved for marriage. I said this slowly, choosing my words carefully. I didn't want Lane to picture the things I did when I was alone. I want to stop, but I need help, I told her. My prayers don't make a difference. I need help to battle this weakness. It was common to use war metaphors when speaking of sin. Lane sat back, just slightly. She frowned, then after a beat, she said, Sin's consequences often follow us for the rest of our lives. Sin rips lives and hearts apart and destroys beauty and joy. Thank you for confessing this struggle. God hears you and he wants to help you. It is a big thing for you to admit, but now the true healing can begin. Lane squinted, as though deciding what to do, then wrapped me in a hug, her large breasts like a pillow for my head. I shook with tears as she held me. Now let's try again, she said, placing her hands back on my head. For the next half hour, Lane alternated between invoking the Holy Spirit to help us and speaking directly to Satan, firmly reminding him that I was a temple of Christ and Satan was not welcome here. I started to feel sick and scared and unreal and possessed by some evil spirit. My tears turned to weeping and I curled up in a ball, rocking myself back and forth on the love seat. Lane's commands to Satan grew louder. Be gone, she half shouted. You're not welcome here. Whether I willed it so that I could rest or God actually did battle with Satan that night to reclaim my soul, I finally felt a lightness open in my chest. My headache, however, was still intact. Okay, I whispered to Lane, exhausted. Okay. She leaned back against the love seat and we sat in silence. You've done good work, said Lane. That was very brave of you. Thank you, I said, dazed and a bit disoriented. Do you think differently of me now? I asked, not looking up at her. I couldn't get my thoughts straight. Was my headache supposed to be gone by now? Or did it take a while to take effect, like a time-release capsule? Of course not, she said. Did you think differently of me when I confessed my eating disorder? No, I said, clutching her arm as I snuggled in close. I'm proud of you for seeking help, she said. We must constantly die to ourselves and be born again into God's love. God is smiling right now because you chose him over yourself. God doesn't expect us to be perfect, only to try our best. I wiped the tears from my eyes and smiled. God must love me a lot to give me Lane as a friend. A friend to show me I could still be loved despite a shameful secret. I felt wholly accepted. I'd been offered hope and accountability to overcome what hurt me, and I believed that everything would be okay, and that my headaches would surely be gone by the morning. We should do some goal setting, said Lane, to stay on track. I agreed, and we took a minute to think of our goals. How can I help you with yours? Lane asked. I thought about it then told her I would write unsent apology letters to all the boys I'd had lustful thoughts about, 
and an apology letter to the future husband God had in mind for me for not being good to him. Then I'd write an apology letter to God. I asked Lane if she'd check in with me in a week to make sure I'd written them. She smiled. You know what I love about you the most, she said, throwing a blanket over our laps. Your persistence when you want something. I'm thankful that your strength to fight has been renewed. I'm proud of you, friend. You know what I love about you, I said, pulling up the blanket. Your persistence in holding me accountable. Lane tipped her head against mine and said, Let's do something cozy the rest of the night. Gilmore Girls, I said, eyeing the DVD box set of our favorite TV show across the room. You read my mind. She smirked at me. Lane grabbed the remote and I grabbed a box of Oreos as the show's theme song filled our room, washing away all traces of the demon voice I'd imagined filling it earlier. Where you lead, I will follow anywhere that you tell me to. Amanda E.K. is a writing instructor and the editor-in-chief of Denver's Suspect Press magazine. She's currently pitching her memoir about her sexual development while growing up in evangelical purity culture, and she's working on projects for film and TV. Follow her on Instagram at Amanda E.K. Writer and read more about her projects at AmandaEKWriter.com. And sadly, Suspect Press published their final issue last month. Suspect Press was an important voice in Denver's art and literature scene, and it will be missed. I was telling my kids the other day that when they came into this world, my connection and love for them was immediate and intense. It was a feeling I'd never experienced before or since, really. And it's fascinating to me from the point of view that I don't know where that feeling comes from. Is it an intellectual feeling or biological or some evolutionary holdover meant to keep the human species growing and healthy? It's fair to say I am not a person who is capable of answering those questions at all. But, you know... That's why I turned to art. And with that somewhat clumsy introduction, here's our next story from writer Ellen K. Graham. A quick heads up, the story does talk about the Newtown school shooting. My son is 11 and recently stopped coming into our bed every night. I would wake up and see a black shadow scaling my husband's sleeping form. He would settle between us with his clammy feet, with their wolverine nails, press his forehead to mine, twine his fingers into my hair, plow a knee in my stomach. For him, there is no such thing as too close. There is for me, though, so I would usually get up and go into his room and sleep the rest of the night in his bunk bed. Five years ago, he was six. Like most little kids, he was obsessed with his age. Whenever I would talk about something that happened in the past, he would ask, and how old was I? Sometimes these events occurred before he was born, and I would answer, negative two or negative 200 or whatever. 
After one such answer, he asked, And where was I? You were a little moat out in the universe, I said. He considered this and said, Then when you wanted a child, you came and found me? Yes, I said. A year before that, he was five and very into Cinderella. Put on a dress and some beads, he would direct me. It was like an Oedipal version of Vertigo. I was always Cinderella. Sometimes he would be the prince, and we would quasi-waltz around the house. Sometimes he would be the bluebirds and attempt to style my hair. Other times he would be Anastasia and Drusilla and mime the part where they rip off Cinderella's stolen sash and beads. This is how it begins, I know. Mothers and sons have a terrible record in the literature. My unreasonable voice will echo in his head, torpedo his relationships, possibly drive him to needlework or violent crime. In return, I will brood in the dark, waiting for his texts, and never sleep well again. A year before that, we were driving along one winter Friday when the president came on the radio, talking about 26 dead in a school in Connecticut. The president's voice broke, and I had to pull the car over. That night, I cooked a big dinner, and my parents came over because they needed to be close to my son to breathe him in and bask in his restless light. As I lay next to him at bedtime, he coughed once, then threw up, spectacularly, in what turned out to be the opening salvo of a long night of tears and laundry and the mop. But I clung to his heaving body, vomit in my hair, on my hands, and couldn't get close enough. The following Monday, when we returned to school, there were new locks, a new security camera, an intercom on the door, and the principal was outside, looking into all of our faces as we walked past him into the building. A searching look, like he was scanning us and committing us to memory. The view down the hallway was like one of those lenticular pictures. Hold it this way, and you see kids excited about pajama day and Christmas vacation and making gingerbread houses out of graham crackers. Hold it that way, and the hallway screams with blood and felled bodies. After vacation, they started doing these drills where the children hide in pin-drop silence until the all-clear sounds. There is a cliché that when you have children, your heart is forever outside your body. I cannot improve upon this cliché. I read later that sometimes the Newtown gunman couldn't stand to have his mother near him, and she would sleep on the floor in the hallway outside his room. Two years before that, we went to the playground at the elementary school near our house every afternoon. One day, we stayed a particularly long time. The light grew golden and heavy, and the shadows stretched across the four square courts. Time to go, I said. I'm hungry, he said. Okay, then let's go and get something to eat. I want to have a snack here. I don't have anything here. We need to go home. I don't want to go home. He crouched at the top of the stairs leading to the school. A certain expression had come over his face. His eyes had a feral gleam. I approached him slowly and tried to pick him up, and he screamed and flexed every muscle in his body. I could not keep my grip on him. Was this a human child, this sinewy knot with that erasing scream? How was it possible that he was already stronger than me? I put him back down. After a while, a janitor exited the school, his ring of keys jangling on his hip. He took a look at me and a look at my son, who was staring at me unblinking in tear-stained fury. The janitor paused for a second and shook his head. Come on now. 
Come on now, the janitor murmured to him. My son did not move. Finally, the janitor left, his keys gently jangling as he walked to the parking lot. Time telescoped. The sun sank below the trees. I had the sensation of confronting some subterranean alter ego, an undomesticated animal of limitless power. Finally, the spell broke. He began to cry. I picked him up. He twined his fingers in my hair and wrapped his legs around me, and we went home. A year before that, I had a standing appointment on my calendar at work. Twice a day for 20 minutes, my boss would vacate his office. I would go in, lock the door, brace a chair under the door handle just in case, partially undress, and hook myself up to the breast pump. I made this feeble little wheezing sound that I wondered whether people passing in the hall could hear. To stimulate milk production, you're supposed to close your eyes and think about your baby. But nothing reminded me of him more than the smell of the milk itself, something manufactured by my own body. I had this Ziploc bag that I used to put the bottles of milk in, and it smelled so keenly of me, which reminded me so keenly of him, that I couldn't stand to throw it away. I kept it in the overhead cabinet of my cubicle for a long time after he stopped nursing. Finally, I threw it away, but only because the smell was gone. A year before that, I was in the late stages of pregnancy and aware of carrying around an extra heartbeat, an extra thinking, dreaming consciousness magically lodged in my abdomen. For my day job, I had to visit the state psychiatric hospital in Pueblo and confront a room full of hostile people who thought I was a bureaucrat there to eliminate their jobs. Throughout the endless monologues and PowerPoint presentations, my son flip-flopped, slid his tiny elbows along the inside of my womb, distending my shirt and pressing up against the edge of the table. I put my hand on my belly and smiled my blank, impassive bureaucrat smile, surveyed the outraged faces around the conference room table and thought, I don't give a shit about any of you. Five months before that, I was walking through Cherry Creek Mall and I was seized by a crippling nausea, the kind of nausea that seems engineered by evolution to prevent us from eating rotten meat. After the wave passed, I realized what had triggered my nausea was the noxious, perfumed fug emanating from the Abercrombie and Fitch store about a hundred feet away. I couldn't eat green vegetables and I could no longer abide the scented essential oils I'd brought back from Egypt, so I threw them away. I got a fierce, endless respiratory infection. My sister, the immunologist, said, That's because there are paternal antigens on the fetus. In other words, my body had to lower its defenses so the fetus could grow. This is not a metaphor. This is just biology. One month before that, I bought a two-pack pregnancy test at Walgreens. I went home and tried to use it, but my hand was shaking so much I couldn't get the pee on the stick. I ended up peeing into a plastic cup I had gotten for free at Rock Island and sticking the wand in there. After the results, I went for a long run in Cheeseman Park. It was April, cool and velvety green. I met my husband on the street as he arrived home from work. I brought a souvenir home from Egypt, I said, trying to be clever. He looked alarmed, thinking I'd gotten some sort of intestinal parasite. We nicknamed the embryo Imhotep, in honor of the country where he was conceived. One month before that, we were on a cruise down the Nile. Even before the revolution, cruises were cheap and plentiful. 
Our room was tiny with wooden twin beds, but we had a sliding door out onto a tiny balcony, and every day at four o'clock they served tea and cookies on the upper deck. Delta farms slid by, horses pulling cartloads of cotton, lonely minarets on hillsides, occasionally a grand monument, an ancient temple sliding into view. I'm an unbeliever, but at Karnak, I walked around the scarab pillars seven times, asking for a child. Two months before that, my husband and I, after many months of tiptoeing around, made a date to talk about whether we should try to have a child. We went to Gabor's on a Friday night. The smell of greasy patty melts underscored by a tinge of sewage. Punk rock in the jukebox. I drank several glasses of acrid Merlot. A friend told me once that there was no way to rationalize the decision to have a child. You just had to jump off the cliff. We jumped. Thirteen years before that, I woke up from a dream. In the dream, I had been hit by a car and had total amnesia. A stranger delivered to me a thick manuscript intended to fill me in on the life that I had forgotten. From the manuscript, I learned that I had had two children and that both had been killed in the car accident that took my memory. I woke up from the dream bereft. I was 21, a student, with no partner, no plan. I had never given much thought to having a child, but on that gray Chicago morning, with that ghost grief still thrumming in my chest, I suddenly knew what I wanted. Ellen K. Graham writes plays, screenplays, and narrative nonfiction. Her work has been produced in Chicago, Columbus, New York City, and in her hometown of Denver, where she has worked with many companies, including Buntport and Toto 2, Benchmark, Pandemic Collective, Paragon, and the Denver Center. She's the founder of Feral Assembly, a resident playwright and programming curator at Theater 29 Denver, a co-founder of Shocking Beyond Belief Films, and a member of the Dramatist Guild of America. To learn more about Ellen and her work, please visit feralassembly.com. And of course, we'll have links to hers and Amanda's work in the show notes. And that's it for today's episode. Low Orbit is produced and edited and occasionally even soundtracked by me, Josh Madison. If you have an idea or something, or I don't know, just want to reach out and say hello, you can find the show on the Twitter media. Whoops. On the Twitter media? Sure. Why not? You can find the show on the social media sites we've all entered a devil's bargain with. Instagram, Facebook, and even Twitter. Although, if I'm playing favorites here, the Instagram is probably the most entertaining of all of these. And of course, there's the old-fashioned... Is it really? I guess it is. Email at denverorbit at gmail.com. And we will see you in a few weeks.